Good morning. We do have a packed house. I'm glad that you're here and that you are a part of it. Uh, I have a couple of quick announcements to make, very important, but I want to share these before we jump into the lesson. First, it's my joy to get to introduce a new couple to this church family. They want to make this their church home. Eli and Olivia Todd, their pictures on the screen. Where are you? Oh, there we are. Y'all mind standing where you are, giving us a wave? Let me tell you a little bit about Eli and Olivia. Eli attended Freed Hardeman, and then he transferred to UT Martin. There he met Olivia. Uh, Eli is an engineer. He works in Lewisburg. Olivia is a teacher in Franklin. And here's the good news. They were just married. Uh, three weeks ago, March the 26th, so we've got some newlyweds, and they want this to be their church family. So introduce yourself to them. We're so glad that they are a part of us. Next week is Senior Sunday. We do this as a church. We look forward to this day. The front of the bulletin has the pictures of our graduating seniors. Next Sunday, Barrett will give the message that morning. Uh, along with that, after classes, hear ye, hear ye, we're going to have a church-wide fellowship. Do you remember those? It's been a while since COVID, so this will be our first, and we're thinking this will be a great thing to do in conjunction with honoring our seniors. Um, we'll have several uh, extended family here, so we'll be thinking about that. Meat's going to be provided. Uh, it's going to be a good day. Uh, we try to, once a month, to have some type of uh, method to connect. We call our Sunday Night Connect once a month, and that's going to be next Sunday. So we're in lieu of a Sunday night gathering, that meal, we're going to encourage everybody to be here for that and to get to know one another. Uh, and you're going to be glad you're here. Uh, this weekend, um, good news to share, we had several of our young people who were part of the Lads to Leaders Convention, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And today is Easter Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, one little detail on that, um, our children's ministry has provided a photo backdrop. Uh, there's a picture of it in the bulletin, uh, you might see that in there, um, uh, and I was thinking about that, so everybody's dressed up before everybody gets home and they start pulling the things off or messing things up. If you want to get a, a picture of your family, it's going to be in our family center, so when you go in there for the coffee time, uh, it'll be available it's on the opposite wall. Uh, also, after class, I was thinking about that, I thought it would be so good if we had um, not just a picture of the backdrop, but just a family that would show you know, kind of what it looks like, and so our elders are great. Three of them jumped up and said, I'll help. Look at the picture. <clears throat> we have the best church ever, do we not? And it's because we've got the best elders ever. So, hey, if you want your picture made, uh, we'll have a good time. Again, during our coffee time and after Bible classes. We've got the best news to talk about today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was the most important event in history. Does that sound like an overstatement? Does that sound like an exaggeration? Is that just something that a preacher says on Easter Sunday? Well, it's absolutely true. If Jesus defeated death, then that moment is the most single important moment in history. A television show told a story about some cave explorers. That's not my cup of tea. You might love that. But these guys had maneuvered way back into the recesses of the cave, and they were unaware that a significant rainstorm 
had hit. In fact, they only were made aware of that when the water started rising in the cavern where they were. And they thought, well, surely they could just kind of wait it out. But the water continued to rise and continued to rise. And they crawled up into the very top part of that particular cavern. And they were thinking, if this doesn't go down, we're not going to make it. In fact, at that rate, they figured they've got about an hour left. So the better swimmer of the three thought there must be a way out. So he bravely dove underwater. He found an opening and swam into it, not knowing exactly where it would lead. But only about 20 feet away, he was so encouraged to find an even larger cavern that had plenty of space and plenty of air and that they would be able to survive in there. So he rested a moment, caught his breath, and then swam back to his friends in the opening. And he told them there was a way out and they could survive. Now, when he burst up out of that water... At that moment, that was the best news they had heard. It was more important than who won the ball game or how much money was in their bank account. That was exactly what they needed to hear. It was proof that they could live. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is exactly that for us. We're doomed. We don't have a way out. We're convicted of our sins, and we know that. And when Jesus came back from the grave, that's exactly what we needed to hear. Because unless Jesus comes back, no one comes out of this alive. No one has gone to the grave and then come back and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, like Jesus did. When he came back, after dying on the cross, being buried, and rising again, he showed us there is a way. I am the way. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. When Jesus said, follow me, he was saying that there was a path to life. There was a path of hope. There was a path of rescue. The fact that Jesus defeated death is for us the single most important event in history. It proves there's hope for tomorrow. It gives us meaning for today. Josh McDowell, you may know this about him, he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. He wrote this, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject, I've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever folks foisted on the minds of human beings, or it's the most remarkable fact of history. He chose to believe the latter. And since then, you may know this, has written several life-changing books and is noted to be one of the best apologists about who Jesus is. I hope when you leave today, you will be convinced in the resurrection as the most fantastic fact in history. And to help with that, what I want us to do for our study time is to look in John chapter 20. So open your Bibles there. You can follow along. It's also going to be on the screen if that'll help you. And, and notice how there were three different appearances Jesus made in this chapter. And I want to notice the reactions of these three because they're very typical of the way we respond to the same news even today. The first appearance was to Mary Magdalene. And I want you to notice that her response was, feeling is believing. 
Feeling is believing. Try to put yourself in Mary's shoes that Sunday morning. Mark's gospel tells us that earlier Jesus had delivered her from seven demons. So she had quite an affection for Jesus because he saved her life in every way. Some people will say that Mary Magdalene was the prostitute, but remember the Bible doesn't tell us that. I put that into the category that if a, a statement is repeated, often enough people tend to believe it. You've heard of that even today. We hear that said about her, but the Bible doesn't tell us that about her. What we do know is that Jesus had healed her. And so Mary was so grateful. So much so that she, among others, was so crushed at his death. This one who had given her her life back. Now, early in the morning... Before it was dark, while it was still dark, she came to the grave. Why? Because what else could she do? She was so despondent. But when she arrived at the tomb, she discovered the entrance, that stone was rolled away and the body was missing. Look at John 20, verses 1 through 3. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord, my, the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. So Peter and John, they run to the tomb, and then they go back to their homes. But Mary had followed them back to the tomb, and there she was weeping outside, and then finally looks inside the cave. Look at verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. You know, we read stories like this. It's helpful for us to understand. In fact, we appreciate The Bible just doesn't read like a lie. If you were making up this story about Jesus, if you were trying to uh, pretend, you would not write it this way. You would not tell it this way. In Jesus' day, in that culture, you would not let the first witness here be a woman. Because they would not even allow a, witness, a woman to be a witness in their court. They were not seen in the same way. But according to this inspired account, Jesus appears to a woman, to Mary Magdalene. Now, even though she didn't recognize him, we don't know why. Was it because she was so, so tearful, so despondent, and, and she just wasn't seeing things clearly? Or maybe Jesus in some way had disguised himself? We, we don't know. But verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She's so distraught. Just like, tell me. Just tell me. what I'll take care of him. But when Jesus spoke her name, Mary does this 180. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, we can read the words. They're on the screen. They're on your Bibles. But we cannot recreate the emotion of that moment. You know, I commented, try to put yourself in her shoes, and we can do the best we can. But, you know, Mary had no hope. 
Jesus was dead. The one who had made her whole again was no more. For three days, they'd waited in silence. And then that voice that she knew of the one whom she loved said, Mary. And she knew it was her Lord. Can we even begin to imagine her joy? Jesus said her name. It was him. He was alive. She grabbed him. She grabbed him and kept clinging to the point where Jesus had to intervene for a moment. Verse 17, Do not cling to me, he said to her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and all the things he had said to her. Mary's reaction is so typical. It's so emotional. It's understandable. And she was just clinging on to him. You ever been in such a moment that you hug someone so tight you don't realize how tight you're hugging them and they're kind of pushing you away? It's like she was so caught up in the moment. We can relate to this because we're not unlike that sometimes in our response to God. We, could, we too can be overcome by our emotions. Maybe years ago, it was a very emotional moment when you felt so close to God, so much so that the truth of the gospel, it just all came together and you were convinced and, and you gave your life to the Lord. You decided to be baptized. You said, this is the moment. Maybe it was that moment of decision. Maybe for you, you think back to a day at summer camp. And you just think so fondly of how you felt at that moment when you believed so strongly. Or maybe some other special church gathering. And you felt so close to the Lord. It's kind of hard to put it into words, but you remember how it feels. You remember it down deep because it changed your life. But then time happens. And the feelings subside and now that emotion is faded and and in some ways it's it's disappointing because we love that moment we love that decision when it all came together and you no longer feel as close to the Lord and maybe you even question your salvation and you wonder did it really happen and and was that really meaningful and and maybe you'd like to kind of reconstruct that fervor that feeling again I know some people who That's their attraction to go back to church camp because they remember as a child that moment early on in their faith development. And so even as an adult, they want to go back or maybe the next big conference or the next concert or or whatever it is to get that emotional high again. Think about it. And we can all be guilty of this. How often do we evaluate a church service a Sunday morning by how the songs make us feel or how the sermon make us feel? How often do we equate the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, with our feelings? You ever heard someone say, you could feel the Spirit? As if the Spirit is only evident by feelings. If we don't feel it, then He's not there. We let our emotions dictate so much of our lives. Now, we all need to understand, and I think we do, that is the nature of emotions, that, that feelings fluctuate. We have our highs and we have our lows. We have those mountaintops and we have those valleys. 
I was thinking about this last week that we've been studying for several months now. That Jesus started on a high mountaintop. Everybody saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, to the end of the week becoming the punching bag and dying that brutal death. How difficult that was. And to be frank, I'm a little suspicious of those people who were always spiritually high. You know what I'm talking about? Where every day they're praising the Lord. Because some days I don't feel it. You know, there are some days where circumstances are so awful, it's a struggle for me. Maybe you have those as well. Speaking of struggle, I was thinking of Tennessee football. But I, I looked it up. Tennessee football claims six official national championships. You know that? Six. That's a big deal. Some of you, you're, yeah, you're smiling. You're going, mm-hmm. You remember the moment. And in that moment, there's, there's nothing like it. When your team wins, the emotions, it, it is great. And it can be a, a, a little, little ones that don't even know how to read and write yet to your favorite college team or your pro team. But when, it, when they win, there's some emotion there. It's just you buy the hat, you wear the T-shirt, you put the stickers on your car. I mean, you are just in that moment, and it is great. But you know what happens? That means the season's over, and life moves on, and the emotions go away. That's part of it as well. The same is true spiritually in so many ways. Now, sure, there's feelings involved. I mean, God made us that way, and those can be good. But there's more to it than just the feelings. If I only go to work when I feel like it, if you only go to work when you feel like it, how often are we going to go to work? You probably don't even have a job anymore. Because you don't always feel like it. You don't let the emotions dictate our life in that way. Faith cannot be sustained by fluctuating emotions. Paul wisely advised young Timothy to be prepared in season and out of season. Isn't that what he's talking about? When you feel like it, when you don't, when it's popular, when it's not, when it's up, when it's down. Is that not why Jesus said to Mary, okay, stop clinging to me. We got work to do. Go tell the disciples. I believe that's exactly what's going on here. Well, John 20 tells us about a second group to whom Jesus appeared. And this is the disciples. The disciples. And their response was, seeing is believing. Look at John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, that first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Can we take a moment now and put ourselves in their shoes? That you would be in that room with them and the atmosphere had to be electric. If everybody is just kind of processing all that's going on, Jesus just died. It's been these three days of now what do we do? And now you hear this news, this report about he's alive again. They wanted to believe it is true, but how could it be true? Dead people didn't come back from the grave. And they had to be talking about the many evidences that were coming to light. Like the moved stone. Who moved the stone? What about the broken seal? How do you explain that? What about the missing corpse? Who took the body? Where is the body? Where are the guards? What about the abandoned grave's clothes? Why would the robber take the body but leave the clothes? And why were they folded? That makes no sense. 
What about all these convinced eyewitnesses? I mean, Mary and the other women were certain they saw Jesus. Do we believe them? And there was fulfilled prophecy. Surely someone in that group had remembered Jesus telling them just earlier in the week, in three days, I'm going to come back to life. But in spite of all the convicting evidence, their meeting, notice what John says here, behind locked doors. And why? Because they're afraid. You see all this coming together. Verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Did the chattering stop? Did their jaws drop? I mean, were they just all covered in goosebumps at this moment? Jesus appeared, not knocking at the door. He just appeared. I find it so fascinating as I read through this, and I want more details here. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, that our bodies, if we're still living, we're going to be changed, and our bodies will be like His. Now, we don't know what all this is, but here we read, He can just appear. Locked door doesn't keep Him out. I mean, this is an amazing moment, and he tells them, peace be with you. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Of course they were glad, because for the disciples, seeing is believing. And there are people like that even today. Sometimes I'm like that. Sometimes you're like that. We want to see it for ourselves. But the truth is, God has provided so much evidence that we're without excuse. Think about it. We've got the evidence of the Bible. We've got evidence of answered prayer. We've got evidence of changed lives. Think about this from a big picture. Who's changing lives for the better if Jesus is not alive? Someone said, if Christianity is not true, then a lie has done more to civilize the world than all the truth combined. There is so much evidence to believe that God is active, but like so many, like these disciples, we choose not to believe until we see it ourselves. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 gives a definition that everybody needs to know. Look on the screen. Now, faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see. Faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see. Well, there's a third person John tells about, and that's Thomas in John chapter 20. If Mary's reaction was feeling is believing and the disciples was seeing is believing, well, Thomas' response is, Proving is believing. Now, the Bible doesn't give the reason, but Thomas wasn't there on that first night when Jesus appeared to the disciples. Look at verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas wanted proof more than just seeing unless I place my finger I gotta touch it myself is that not what he's saying here not even just see it I want to touch it myself you guys told me what you saw but how do I know you weren't seeing things why should I believe you maybe your eyes are playing tricks on you 
The last thing Thomas wants is a superficial, naive faith, the way he sees a Mary Magdalene or a Peter. Highly emotional, super impetuous. Remember the reading earlier about Peter just ran into the tomb? That was Peter. Peter just jumps and thinks later. Not Thomas. Thomas is a thinker. Thomas is more cerebral. We see this. He's rational. And then notice how Jesus deals with Thomas. He waited. Maybe that's a lesson for all of us. If you've got a friend, somebody in your family who's skeptical, all your emotions, you're nonstop talking, probably not going to help them. Maybe what you need to do is give them some space. Let the cave fill up with water. And then when they go under for a bit and they're ready for some news, then you can be there to help. See, every thinking person will go through a period of doubt, a period of questioning. What does this mean? Is it really true? So don't hit the panic button too quickly, and don't give up. Jesus gave Thomas eight days. Well, everyone else is excited again about Jesus, telling about seeing him, what that was like. There's Thomas waiting for real proof. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus does not attack Thomas's character. He doesn't re- re- rebuke him for his lack of faith. He simply placed the undeniable proof right there in front of him. Verse 28, Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Stay with me for a moment. I am confident there are people today hearing this message in this room or online who are hearing this who've never committed your life to Jesus because you want more proof. If I had more proof, I would believe. If someone could prove to me Jesus came back from the grave, not only would I believe, I'd be the most dedicated follower, but I've got to have more proof. Even though they've read book after book, they've heard message after message, Bible discussions, you're still not convinced. I'm going to tell you something. You are never going to have enough proof. You won't. Faith is the assurance of things we hope for. And the certainty of what we do not see. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. See, the proper reaction when we're dealing with this is not just relying on our emotions or seeing or proving. It's trusting. That's what faith is. Someone said, you've heard this before. Faith is going to the edge of all the light you have and then taking one more step. Faith is more than feeling, because feelings go up and down. Faith is more than seeing a supernatural sign. Think about in Jesus' day, there's always people like, feed us again, do us a sign, do us a miracle. And they would come and they would go. Faith does not require proof at every turn. If, if you've got to have faith, if you've, got, if you've got to have that proof at every turn, that's not faith, that's knowledge. Faith examines the evidence and then responds intelligently. 
the former Chief Justice of England, the Lord Darling, wrote this. There exists such overwhelming evidence for the resurrection, both factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. So what if you don't believe? Let me suggest three problems that might be an issue for you. Your problem may be indecisiveness. Just not quite ready to make a decision. You have trouble. You, you have trouble deciding what to wear, where to eat, what to believe. I think it's Leah Coca who's uh, quoted as saying, an executive has to learn to make decisions when 95% of the evidence is in. If you wait until 100%, you waited too late. There comes a moment in your life where you have to decide, what do I believe? To not decide is to decide. So indecisiveness might be your issue. A second problem may be that you choose not to believe because of sin. That you have enough integrity to know that Jesus says, I am the way. And if I believe in this Jesus, then I've got to follow that way. And that means that there's some things that you might have to give up. One cartoon depicted two sailors on a raft. They'd been adrift for days. And they were desperate. One of them knelt and began praying to God. Oh, Lord, I know I haven't lived a good life. I drink too much. I lied. I cheated. I've done so many things I'm ashamed of. But, Lord, if you just save me, I promise. Hold it. Hold it, his friend said. I just spotted land. That's what happens when we're trying to make a decision. And we have to think, wait a minute. Am I ready to give up some things? I don't want to give up my hunting or golfing or sleeping in or going to the lake on Sunday. I don't want to give up my lifestyle with my friends. I don't want to give up sharing my money. What does this mean to follow Jesus? And so selfishly we choose not to believe. I'm convinced, even though we're not quick to say it, more doubt is moral than intellectual. A third problem. And this might be the most frequent, that we don't believe because of our ego. Remember Ted Turner famously said, Christianity is a religion for losers. I don't need anyone to die for me. Following Jesus involves losing. That's true. Losing the weight of guilt and shame. Losing the shackles of sin. Losing the strongholds that keep you back. Christianity is for those who humbly admit they cannot conquer the grave. They have a sin problem. They need help from a Savior. They need someone to die for them. That means like Thomas, I have to say, I was wrong. My Lord and my God, I believe but that is difficult to do, especially if your whole life is projecting this image of strength and intelligence and good decision making. And now you have to say, I was wrong. That's hard to do. But it's a little person with a big ego who will never admit I was wrong. It takes more courage to publicly repent and respond to Jesus Christ than it does just to sit in a pew in silence. Jesus said, unless you repent and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Remember that story I shared at the beginning, the little analogy about the, the cave and, and how that's so similar to what we have in the truth of Jesus Christ coming back from the grave? There's one serious flaw where it really doesn't parallel. They saw their friend come back out of the water and they could hear him for themselves. You and I were not there. As Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their Gospels, they talk about how he appeared to this woman or these women or this group or this group. But we weren't there. We have not seen the risen Lord. So what do you believe? Think of it like this. You're in that cave. And the water is now up to your chin. And you just look there on the side of the cave. And you see etched there on the side a message from four professional cave explorers whom you know, and they tell you there's an opening at the bottom side. There's hope. And it's signed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They've told you what you need to know. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. If you want to believe, you can. Because there's so much evidence. John ends the chapter. Look at this. John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is the question. Two more verses. Acts 4.12, Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And then Hebrews 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? We always end our worship time with a song of invitation. And part of that is to give anyone, everyone, an opportunity to respond. Maybe for you it's something private. You pray to God. No one else hears or knows or you reconnect, you confess, whatever it is, so that you are one with God. But if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, never made the statement that Thomas made, my Lord and my God, that is part of what he wants to know. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you willing to let him make you a new creation by washing your sins away in baptism, giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit? Because part of that includes part of it is repenting saying I was wrong I can't do it I need help I started off bragging on this church it's a great church it is a great church you know why it's great because we've got a great Lord because really all of, we're just we're sinners who found Jesus and we can't stop talking about it so this song is to encourage you to make that same decision Say yes to Jesus. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you? Amen.